Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thank you all for coming for the GIA seminar today. And today we have uh, Dr. Uh, Jason West. He's a senior lecturer at the Department of Accounting, Finance, and then Economics with us at uh, GBS. And then has held a very impressive career path uh, outside academia. Uh, he was a research and trading roles at the standard uh, Chartered Banks in Singapore and Commonwealth Bank in Sydney, and then also ANZ Bank in Brisbane. Uh, Jason also had been a head of the energy research at the BHP uh, Billiton and The Hague, and then has a PhD in a quantitative finance from the University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, and then he will give us a talk titled Analyzing the Motives, uh, Sustaining a Foreign Investment Researchers in the Australian Core. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity to present to you this, after, this afternoon. Um, and please just ask questions throughout. It's just informal. I don't tend to. I just want to get some feedback, basically, on, on the basics of research. And given that the Griffith Asia Institute is right next door, um, what a better place to get that from. So the, the topic uh, is essentially uh, looking for to assess what, what the, mo the new motivation for investing in um, uh, Australian resources and in particular coal assets over the you know over the, the past 10 years and and what that looks like going forward and I've selected the major investors in Australian coal assets um, throughout the last three or four decades have been the Japanese and looking at their motives for their their uh, sustained investment in Australia uh, for the future um, is, is of interest because it will affect the way that the the industry is structured and, um, and and the pricing of the uh, the offtake of, of such that of, of that coal. A lot of this uh, research stemmed out of my re, uh, my research time at uh, BHP Billiton, where we were really looking to focus on where the strategic um, uh, assets were and uh, which ones we could uh, you know, sell or, or act in a joint venture with uh, with, with particular Japanese offtake uh, companies for their um, for their ongoing uh, you know, steel production and so on. So the basic aims of the, of the paper, uh, st and, and I guess part of that research, stemmed from um, some of the research I discovered, uh, which looked at the Japanese investment in Australian coal uh, industry having an effect to swamp the market effectively and push prices down. And this was the, the main contention that a few researchers made in the, um, the, over the 80s and the 90s. And clearly... I don't know if they clearly showed, but there was some suggestion of that pricing pressure uh, being uh, implemented into the market, which was um, driven by Japanese investment in, in Australian coal assets. And this was termed profitless prosperity, and it was, it was claimed that Australian coal would, be, would continue to stay in this zone, a petrol case of profitless prosperity, which uh, was driven by motives other than profit. So it was just looking to you know, sustain a low price, for coal so they can offtake it and uh, use it for power production and uh, steel production um, uh, for, for, you know, for, the, for the benefit of the, the, the Japanese um, as a whole. This was um, enabled through the, these large Japanese trading companies, also known as the Soga Shosha. And these, these companies are just large uh, kiretsu, uh, large conglomerates with many, um, many sort of uh, assets all around the world vertical integration and horizontal integration, as well as cross-ownership with each other. And, and that kind of complex um, holding arrangement enabled them to generate quite significant 
in investment appeal abroad and um, have, have a large influence and, and impact on their, uh, their ability to invest abroad. They're also able to tap the Japanese taxpayer through the um, use of government concessions for funding through large um, export credit agencies like JBIC um, and tapping that at quite low and uh, fairly um, flexible um, funding rates enabled them to you know, inject significant investment abroad. Um, so this strategy, was it used to create oversupply in the market, depress contract prices? Um, I don't know. Like, there's not sufficient evidence in the 90s as claimed that it, that, that it was. So I just decided to, OK, let's have a look at what's happened in the last 10 to 15 years and see if that aim of profitless prosperity was to continue. And particularly now, the case for investing in assets I would have thought would have been quite stronger given the security supply issues around securing coal, iron ore and, uh, and other minerals, which would induce uh, Japanese investment abroad and look to you know, secure, secure supply at the expense of profit. So just looking for this sort of relationship was the, uh, the main aim of the paper. Out of the, uh, the paper that I've shown is uh, I've shown basically that this, this, this sort of uh, quasi-integration, and I'll get into this term of quasi-integration uh, in a moment, um, it's no longer really a primary strategy employed by the Japanese, and that comes clearly through in the data and in the returns that the Japanese companies investing in Australia now actually earn. It's actually a profitable investment in its own right. Um, and the use of JPIC funding, or Japanese export credit funding, has diminished significantly over the last 15 years. Um, therefore, this, this uh, imperative to secure supply and drive down prices, if it ever existed, I think, now no longer does. And I also want to basically just touch on the investment behaviour of the new entrants in the market, particularly the, uh, the emerging economies of China, India, uh, Brazil um, and uh, Korea, looking to secure supply of their own, um, invest abroad, are they following the Japanese model or not? So I just wanted to you know, quickly touch on those at the end of the paper. Coals, you know, some people know about coal, a lot of other people don't, so I just want to give you a quick brief of what the coal market is. There's two types of coal, generally. You can split them down the middle. Um, thermal coal, which is in, used in power production, and metallurgical coal, which is used in steel production. Uh, metallurgical coal uh, is uh, it's, um, uh, put in coke ovens to produce coke, and then that's put into a blast furnace to produce uh, iron, uh, produce steel from uh, w w along with iron ore. So the met coal market is is quite a lot smaller than the thermal coal market. Obviously, thermal coal market, you're looking at it, I guess overall, this is energy adjusted, so it's all sort of brought up to a benchmark level. About five and a half billion tonnes of coal we consume annually in the, on, on the global terms, and you know 88 percent of that is in thermal coal. The remainder is in metallurgical coal. Um, of the 88% of the total, um, the seaborne coal market is actually quite small. It's only about a, a tenth of the, the global consumption. So, you know, all these claims that you know Australian coal is killing the world, blah blah blah. It's, it's certainly not. Australia exports maybe 180, 200 million tonnes of uh, thermal coal annually. On a global scale, it's it's nothing. It's you know a week's burn. So. Um, it's, it's, um, that, that just puts it all in context, and this is the sort of market that we're talking about. However, in the seaborne coal market, it is of, of significant quality. It has to be. It's high margin, and it's of the quality that uh, the Japanese uh, power production is, is, uh, is aimed at. So boilers 
for power production are built uh, according to different specifications, depending on the coal that they source. Higher quality coal, higher energy levels, means they have to burn it at a higher temperature, um, so the boilers are structured for that. You can't put in lower quality coal into that. In addition to that, places like Japan impose quality restrictions on nitrous oxide, sulphur oxide, mercury levels, all that sort of stuff. So there's, there's impositions on that, plus there's a, a cost associated with ash disposal, and, and ash is a significant component of coal, which, which has to be you know, eliminated at some cost. So that's the basic structure of global trade in coal. Um, Japan has no domestic coal mines. They have domestic coal. They used to have you know, a couple of mines. They have to import basically all of their coal, as does other places like Korea and the EU. That's the basic global thermal coal flow of the seaborne market. So this is this 500 million tonne market as such. The main centres for export are Australia, uh, Indonesia, to a, uh, to a lesser extent, South Africa, Colombia and Russia. And Russia has a small portion that goes out to the, uh, to the Far East and the rest of it supplies European uh, consumption. So Japan, basically, just due to the uh, geographical advantage that Australia has, along with the quality advantage that Australia has in coal, is positioned well to purchase Australia... Uh, Japan is positioned well to purchase Australian coal uh, as its major, major source. They, they do obtain coal from China, they do obtain coal from uh, Russia and South Africa, and a small amount from Indonesia. Um, but about a half to two-thirds of their supply is, 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 um, is taken from Australian uh, coal. That's for, um, for thermal production. Uh, basically, coal is, is uh, comprised of some useful bits and some useless bits. Um, you have this, this fixed carbon and volatile matter is the stuff that's burned, it's, it's the carbon that's burned through the boiler, and then the useless bits, such as moisture, uh, mineral matter, all these volatiles, uh, but in particular ash, are, are useless for that, for that power production. They, they decrease the value of the coal. In Australia, we're quite lucky. We have um, fairly low moisture, but high ash coal. The ash can be liberated through a washing process, through a benefici benefici beneficiation process, through a wash plant, which just liberates a lot of the excess ash and is able to achieve a, a fairly stable quality coal at about 12% ash, low moisture for Japanese consumption. And this is the stuff that the, the Japanese uh, power producers are after. The other major importers, like China, Korea, India, can burn much higher ash levels, 15, 17, 20% ash, uh, blend away, whatever, you know, it, it, it's a lot less restrictive. Now the new boiler technology has come along, um, enabling them to burn at a lower temperature, higher efficiency. So, I mean, Australia's power production, US, uh, Japan, pretty poor efficiency levels, around about 30, 32% thermal efficiency. Um, whereas the Chinese are really getting about 40, 44% out of their sub, supercritical uh, power plants now. So that's where the future lies. However, the rest of us are stuck with these you know, 20, 30-year-old power stations that have another 20 or 30 years life left in them, and we have to, Japanese in particular, have to source that um, specific grade of coal. So hence their, um, their uh, investment um, profile into Australian, uh, into Australian coal over the past 30 years. Um, in terms of imports to, to Japan, there's a steady increase in imports um, over the past uh, 15 years. And this is expected to stay at about that level, 110 million tonnes per annum for the next at least 7 to 10 years. There's no sign of them switching to renewables or nuclear or anything like that, regardless of the, you know, any accidents or anything like that. It's, their, their profile is to diversify their energy needs 
and uh, secure a, a portfolio of, um, of, energy, uh, of energy sources. Uh, and coke and coal, there is still a, a growth in, in, um, in the demand uh, from Japan, notwithstanding the growth in steel mill um, expansions in, in China. And that's obviously driven by steel demand, so that's a com more complicated relationship. Power demand is fairly a little, a little simpler to, uh, to, to kind of get a handle on. So what, it, in this, um, the previous papers that uh, were published around this topic discussed this, this um, concept of quasi-integration. And it was claimed that in the 90s Japan really had this, a dominant position in the Asia-Pacific regional coal market. Not in terms of uh, total volume, it was still only a relatively small proportion, but just in terms of their ability to uh, understand, because of their ownership of coal mines, they understood the margins and the costs that were implied in, in mining coal, which allowed them to come to the negotiating table and and uh, have, a, have a much better understanding of the, the true margins that, that, uh, that the coal miners or producers were claiming. So this dominance sort of fed through into their ability to, uh, or of the Japanese trading companies, ability to, um, to influence prices using concessional funding through the Japanese government agency uh, and looking to you know, perhaps create an oversupply of some sort to depress coal, uh, coal contract prices. Or at least, if not create oversupply, then at least um, be able to iron out the fluctuations in uh, consumption through time by securing longer-term contracts, which at certain prices, which enabled them to offtake coal at a lower price during a boom, and still offtake coal at a reasonably high price during a depression. But at least they're fixing in those prices. And for some reason, I guess a few reasons, but the Japanese tend to like. Um, certainty in their, their offtake prices in the future, as opposed to just letting the, uh, the market dictate what prices do. Other, other countries aren't so concerned. Um, anyway, so two studies um, showed other benefits, and as I mentioned this before, a lot of the Japanese companies investing in Australia were minority players, but they still had access to all the data that those companies were able to produce in terms of cost of production and so on. So that information allowed them to uh, to uh, possibly benefit during contract price negotiations. Um, and it's pretty hard to detect whether or not that existed. So I can't really qualify what happened in the, in the past. Um, however, I can basically qualify what's happened since about 95. Um, and there was also some studies into you know, coke and coal price behaviour uh, negotiations and so on, um, which led to the same conclusions, but still it's, um, it's a bit contentious. Um, it's called quasi-integration because um, it's, they're sort of investing in, a, in, in, in vertical integration, but, um, but not really. You know, integration can, for a Japanese um, trading company, can occur one way, but not really the other way. So uh, they can invest in an Australian coal producer, but an Australian coal producer can't necessarily invest in Mitsubishi Development Corp. So there's a, there's a sort of one-way uh, flow of integration there, and that's where this, this term of quasi-integration came from. In terms of the Australian coal industry itself, quite large, obviously, um, fairly high degree of foreign ownership, but that's a bit technical. 75% foreign owned, but most of the companies are, are Bearshka, Billiton, Rio Tinto, Extrata, um, Anglo American, Peabody. So they're large conglomerates in their own right. You can call Bearshka, Billiton foreign owned, fine. Same with Rio Tinto, sort of is, but you know, is it really? Probably not. There's just you know, the, the ownership structure is not not that not that important, I don't think. 
in, in terms of the, uh, the concentration of coal production, it seems, seems quite high, but actual ownership in, industry is, in the industry is quite diverse. Um, a lot of different owners, a lot of joint ventures. These things are very expensive assets. You know, to, to build a coal mine, you need a billion dollars in cash up front, and, and a lot of companies don't have that. So the attraction for entering into a joint venture with the Japanese trading company is quite high. Um, because it's, it secures you with, uh, with cash up front, in a lot of cases, at concessional rates through JBIC. Um, and it also enables you to provide coal to, an, uh, to a customer uh, at, a, at a known price in the future, which makes your bank happy when you're borrowing money. So that's the, 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 general, the general motivation for, uh, for investing uh, through a joint venture uh, with Japanese companies. So has that increased or is it decreasing? This is the basic question. The, um, the Japanese companies really only can, you know, constitute about 20% of total production in, uh, in 2010. And it's, it's remained fairly static through, through time. It hasn't, hasn't actually changed a great deal. So it tends to suggest that, okay, whilst coal production in, in absolute terms has increased, Japanese investment has just increased in line with that, with that general increase uh, over time. So the purpose for we're looking for, I guess, sorry, I'll go back to the last slide, um, the purpose behind looking for some sort of vertical integration to achieve oversupply, it's, it's a bit of a stretch to sort of claim that given when we look at the, uh, the total figures that, that, are, um, that are claimed there. You know, they really only hold a 15% hold over the market uh, and whether or not that's sufficient to depress prices uh, is, a little, uh, is a little unclear. Just to give you an idea of what prices have done over the past 30 years, um, coal's always been a terrible asset to invest in, low margin, you know, making maybe $5, $10 a tonne. as all coal miners ever, ever thought um, and, and we'll hope for the best. Since about 1998 or so, the existence or the emergence of, uh, of index-based pricing and along with the, I guess, liberalisation of the freight market has allowed for more efficient pricing of thermal coal in particular and more recently coking coal and iron ore, um, pushing these uh, commodities, the last commodities in existence, to a floating LME-based type arrangement where market and supply, sorry, demand and supply do really do drive market prices rather than just this, this you know, arbitrary annual contract negotiation. So that has changed the, the way the coal market um, operates um, and it has increased the efficiency of the market in terms of its ability to, um, to tap for extra capital to expand existing or uh, new coal mines or new areas um, and export that coal to, to wherever in the most efficient fashion. So that's, I guess, a, an outline of what, what coal prices have done. And I guess going back to this diagram, the claim is that you know, throughout all this period here, the increased investment by Japanese uh, companies was able to depress that price through oversupply and, uh, and, and, and give them an, a, an advantage in, in, the, uh, in the Pacific coal market. Since about, as I said, about 2000, we've gone to a, a more floating-based index uh, which is just market traded through a broker called Global Coal and uh, prices are listed on there um, and uh, you can trade on the screen or if you trade off the screen with a, in, in negotiation with a, a customer, you'll generally do it with reference to that price that's, that's based on the screen. So it's still reasonably index-linked. So why would, um, I guess, my concern was that if, if, um, if Japan is looking to invest in the Australian coal market and secure assets uh, for, for long -term, their long-term energy security, 
why would they have done it in the 80s and 90s and not now, given that now is when this surge in, in energy demand is starting to drive commodity prices up and also perhaps at the expense of, um, of Japanese energy uh, imports. So just this, this diagram plots the uh, energy demand for countries per GDP per capita for the years 65 to 2008. So the squiggly line just depicts from 65 to 2008, and it just shows you the profile of the, of the, um, of the GDP per capita over that time uh, against the primary level of energy demand over that time as well. So it, t it just, just generally describes the relative level of efficiency between major developed countries and also the profile of, of, develop, of countries that are similar to each other, what their likely trajectory is going to look like as well. So <clears throat> for China, okay, so for basically Korea, Korea's GDP per capita now a fairly well-developed country um, and has been for, uh, for, say, 10 or 15 years. Their, uh, their profile has continued, continued to go up. Japan's somewhat more subdued, I guess, the, you know, the urban sort of urbanisation of Japan. Uh, allows them to create some, uh, some efficiencies in energy consumption, but their profile is, is fairly flat like that. And looking at the two small uh, graphs, or the two small profiles uh, down near the origin, the, the, the longer one is China, so it's just started on its path in terms of GDP per capita versus energy demand. You can see that their profile is going to follow something like Korea or, or the US, fairly broad, large country, um, large distributed network of of, um, of, of cities and so on, their energy demand is going to be high and it's going to go, grow along that profile. Uh, and the really tiny dot is, uh, is India's profile. So they're obviously going to go along the same sort of trajectory as China and in the fullness of time because of the, I guess, similarities in their geographical you know, dispersion and, and uh, number of people and so on. So that <clears throat> tends to suggest that Japan, at any time, should be more concerned about the security supply of energy now than, than any time in the past. And these are basic, um, basic projections of, of energy demand. And <clears throat> you can see in, in, in pure terms, assuming that coal retains its about 50% of, um, of, of energy production, uh, which is likely to happen through time, um, coal, coal production has to increase at you know, quite remarkable rates to satisfy the demands of, of China and India um, and the rest of the uh, non-OECD countries. OECD countries still increasing but a fairly, at a fairly shallow rate um, of around 1% uh, annual growth. So, you know, that's, that's just with the, with the energy intensity coming down, so developed countries become more efficient, um, they don't need as, as much energy, but in, in absolute terms they will still, per capita, we will still consume more energy um, per, per head as, uh, as time goes on. Um, and then I guess it's just, you know, con continue to reinforce this uh, energy security issue. China's growing, everyone knows that, but particularly they're growing on the coast, um, whereas a lot of their coal mines are in, you know, Shanxi province, which is just uh, west of Beijing, up around here. And a lot of new coal mines are developing in and out of Mongolia, uh, up to the north, um, which tends to suggest that, OK, they're, they're a long way from the population centres, um, they burn two and a half billion tonnes of coal a year. That's a lot of coal that you have to rail to places. So what, what's their structure going to look like uh, in the future? Despite their growth in renewables and in nuclear and so on, coal will still be the baseload you know, energy supply 
in China. Uh, they're building power plants like they're um, going out of fashion, um, and their power plants are going to be around for 50 or 60 years, and they're not going to decommission them until then. So there's a, a fairly, fairly strong evidence to suggest that coal will, will power China into the future. Curiously, China is able to um, uh, supply itself with coal. They have large reserves, probably the third largest in the world, 100, 150 billion tonnes um, of coal reserves. Trouble is, a lot of them are quite deep uh, in gassy mines, so they're, they're quite deep underground. I think the average depth of a Chinese coal mine is around about 1,000 metres, so they're a long way underneath, and um, getting, that, uh, getting that coal to the surface uh, is expensive. So on a benchmark level with Australia, South Africa, Colombia, Russia and other exporters, they are about the same rate of uh, cost of production. For the first time in 2009, they actually uh, net imported coal. Um, I think in the longer term, that's not a strategic um, aspect of China's growth. They won't look to strategically secure coal um, internationally to satisfy their internal demand. It's 2.5 billion tonnes. If they can secure you know, 50 million tonnes in Australia, which is a lot of coal, um, that supplies them with about five days' worth of you know, en energy. It's not enough. There's got to be some other reason, and the reason is it's just to um, iron out any bottlenecks in, in China's you know, uh, uh, supply chain, basically, for, for coal uh, consumption. So I think it's more tactical than strategic in terms of China's uh, import uh, profile. But that's just, that's just my, um, uh, my uh, claim. As opposed to India, which has a strategic gap and is likely to have a strategic gap in coal, which will mean they, they need to you know, look, for, look for growth in investment abroad. Um, and obviously the prices uh, are driven by arbitrage here. And this graph just depicts that um, the... The, the Chinese uh, prices really are driving or helping drive a lot of the um, uh, coal production, oh, sorry, uh, uh, costs for thermal coal in the, uh, in the Pacific market. So API 3 is just the, the, the coal taken out of Newcastle. Um, and the Chinese coal price basically sets the floor for this price. So whenever, whenever uh, prices hit a certain, um, certain level uh, at, at a depressed rate, uh, China will get into the market and buy coal at that rate because it's cheaper than mining it themselves. So, um, and, and same when it goes up to a particular level, it'll get too expensive. So Chinese coal prices will sort of fluctuate within this level, which will keep, keep the international coal price up. So given all that evidence, I would have thought <coughs> Japan would look to, to invest much more in Australia, secure supply, um, long-term contracts and so on. And it seems that that's not the case. Um, the JBIC was established... Um, long time ago, uh, and it's had, had other names through time, and its primary policy was to um, allow or enable Japanese companies to, uh, to look at direct foreign investment abroad and supply them with concessional funding that allowed them to, uh, to, to invest without the need for local capital. And they're quite great, you know, the great rates, the 35 basis points for, for 10 years. Um, for you know, $3 billion or whatever. And it's just an amazing sort of funding um, commitment that they can provide. Um, and in addition to that, the, the one thing that sort of set that apart was that, that the profitability of Japanese country, companies in Australia um, over the 80s and 90s was pretty pathetic. Uh, as, a, as a return on asset and equity level, it was quite, quite small. And this was the contention. They're earning uh, returns which are much lower than the industry average, um, why is that? Probably driven through their need to, um, you know, to secure coal and depress prices at the expense of uh, maintaining profit. 
And I guess that may be true. Um, and we'll have a look at if that's you know actually true or not. But in terms of JBIC's loan commitments to Australia over that um, over the past ten years, the black line or the black uh, dot, sorry, the black column at the top of each of these columns, is the loan commitments to Australia from JBIC, as opposed to the global commitments for natural resource development. Um, and uh, in total terms, their investment in Australia has been quite small. There's been a couple of isolated investments. Um, through time, but pretty pretty minor. So it, it doesn't seem to be a, a growth in investment in Australia. Um, and in terms of resource loans uh, for 2008 and 2009, um, in, for their energy profile, and this is natural resource loans um, um, by item in Australia for 2008 and 2009, the, um, you know, they've, in 2008 they've invested in two mines and 09 they invested in one mine so they invested uh, about 8 billion uh, 8 billion yen which is about 100 no, uh, 90 million dollars so it's not much I wouldn't even buy you a you know a couple of trucks so it's it's quite a small commitment that JBIC have made to Australia in natural resources over the past uh, couple of years um, and curiously their their interest in stuff like natural gas uh, and even uranium outstrips coal um, quite significantly uh, despite the fact that coal still in, is, is still a quite a significant portion of their energy production profile. If we compare, say, 99 to 2009, and looking at overseas investment loans, whilst natural resources um, have grown uh, in, in total um, through that period, the, in, the investment in coal, the coal aspect of those natural resources, is quite small. I don't have the figures there, I'm sorry. But the investment in, in coal for securing natural resource um, uh, loans has been uh, has been s uh, significantly small. So you know, 20 projects globally, it's it's not a great deal to actually you know secure uh, secure all of your um, energy needs. Um, this just uh, this slide just depicts a few uh, extra figures. So overseas investment assistance. Um, has grown, and, and this assistance can be in any form. It doesn't have to be a loan as such. It can just be a, an underwritten guarantee or uh, financial guarantee, uh, leasing of uh, equipment made in Japan, etc. There's also there's a range of things that they can provide assistance with, uh, and they do. Um, the natural resource development in Australia has still increased um, over the past 10 years, but in terms of coal mining, it's diminished away to absolute, absolutely nothing. Um, there was one deal last year uh, between Sojitz Corporation and JBIC, um, which amounted to about $100 million. Um, and that's the only one that's been done in the last uh, 10 years that I know of. And looking at the returns uh, of Japanese trading houses versus their parents, um, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, the returns were pretty much the same. Um, rubbish in Australia, rubbish for the parent. You know, terrible. You wouldn't invest in them. But looking at their um, their investments these days, um, and, and re return on equity is, is just the, the leverage version of return on assets, so it includes leverage, so your return on equity should be much higher, the higher leveraged you are. Um, so uh, for uh, the Australian subsidiaries, they're, they're clearly in terms of both return on assets and equity outstripping their parent um, in their Australian operations. Um, and these are the major ones, Mitsubishi, 
Corp, which have a joint venture with uh, BHP Billiton for all the coal, coke and coal mining in, um, in the uh, Bowen Basin. And same with Mitsui. Uh, Maru Benny, uh, also a minor JV partner in many, uh, many coal mines, uh, as is Sumitomo. Edomitsu has uh, 100% ownership of several coal mines in Australia. Uh, Itochu, minor ownership, and have just recently invested in Aston Resources, Nathan Tinkler's Little Baby, and a few other things. Um, so they have uh, significant exposure. And Sojits, as I mentioned, have, um, have just begun their, their profile, or just begun increasing their profile in terms of coal consumption investment, majority investment. For on, on average, um, in, in terms of uh, the, re the, the resource industry average, the Japanese subsidiaries look quite reasonable, fairly healthy, and in line with what, the, um, with what we would expect, um, and certainly outstripping their parent. So the notion that, uh, that they're happy to sacrifice profitability for oversupply doesn't seem to hold. I think the parent companies themselves now quite enjoy the fact that their Australian subsidiaries or foreign subsidiaries are doing well and helping boost their own balance sheet. Therefore, the need for JV funding seems to have diminished somewhat. In terms of looking at the Japanese investment in Australia, so there's still, still significant investment here, does that knowledge allow them to negotiate price uh, differentials, discounts essentially, greater than the, uh, their non-Japanese counterparts? And the evidence also points to this is not basically the case. So if I was to compare um, a set of uh, uh, trades from a um, nameless coal miner's book um, done between uh, non-Japanese uh, companies and Japanese trading companies, um, and then look at the discount, the differential to the index price for each of those trades, this is the sort of scatter diagram we get. And basically this shows that on the, on the, the right-hand side, the Japanese companies tend to pay just whatever the index is, uh, is priced at. The non-Japanese companies tend to engage in a bit of, you know, a bit of uh, gamesmanship to, to you know, pay a premium, pay a discount. And these are all quality adjusted as well, so there's just you know, slight adjustments for maybe timing or um, you know, location and so on. So the, the, the premium or differential will be more aimed at slight quality adjustments and uh, the timing or, or whatever of the, uh, of the offtake itself. So there doesn't seem to be, just visually, a, um, a persistent large discount to the Japanese companies through that diagram. And this, this diagram uh, looks to put all those scatter, scatter diagrams onto a normal distribution. So let's assume that they're normally distributed. And then if it's normally distributed, it should you know, produce a straight line. Uh, it's called a QQ plot. Um, under the, for, for the non-Japanese companies, um, it's uh, a little less straighter than the Japanese companies, which means there's a lot less dispersion from Japanese companies. Okay? So Japanese companies are, uh, are uh, you know, buying, selling, or sorry, buying, buying, buying coal at different premiums, discounts and so on. There doesn't seem to be a particular bias one way or the other um, against the normal distribution. For, uh, for, for their trades over time. Uh, these are the descriptive stats for that previous um, two diagrams. And this says the Japanese companies are earning a typical discount of $1.53 versus the non-Japanese companies earning a discount of about $2.50, um, which also suggests there's no real persistent long-term discount advantage in Japanese negotiation uh, for, uh, for coal. And also, just to you know, kill it and knock this thing to death, to compare um, 
the volume and price differentials as well. So if they're not taking a, uh, a discount, is it because they're just importing a low volume as well? So is there, is there a relationship between volume and price? And in this case, it doesn't seem to be the, the case either. And just looking at it visually, um, when the Japanese are earning large discounts to the index, they're not importing significant volumes. And the, the volumes is, is, uh, is portrayed by the, um, by the uh, size of the column. Um, and it tends to suggest that when, when they're getting a, a, large dif a large discount, they're not actually importing you know, a huge amount of, uh, of coal at any, any point in time. Um, and, uh, and that's the same with the, 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 the non-Japanese traders as well. <coughs> there are a few other foreign invaders, um, and there's growth uh, from Korea, so a lot of Korean companies are looking around. Um, the main one is POSCO, of course, they're the, the large steel maker, uh, so they'll be looking for um, coke and coal assets, and they do have some investments uh, in the Bowen Basin. China is beginning its, uh, its expansion abroad. There's already several companies here who have, who have uh, secured um, a foothold. And, I mean, some of those companies, um, like Huaneng, uh, who are a large energy provider in China, have invested in 50% um, uh, ownership of Intergen, which is a, uh, uh, an energy uh, company, who own half of uh, the Calide power station. So a lot of these Chinese companies are just investing abroad for the sake of investing abroad. They're not, you know, they can't use the electricity. It's, it's for Australian power use. They can't export it to China. So this notion that foreign companies are and countries are coming here to, you know, suck out our energy and take it home is, is not necessarily the case. Um, uh, the US is another one. They're, they're just looking at It's just Peabody, I think, is the only US company here is. But they're looking to, you know, uh, get into the coke and coal market. Their thermal coal market in the US is quite large, but it's low margin. So they're looking for extra margin, as is Brazil, um, and that's Vale, which is the, uh, the large um, iron ore. And... Uh, diversified miner out of Brazil, um, once again looking to secure coke and coal. So Japan in um, relation to Korea, China, USA and Brazil are all fairly similar. The funny one there is India, they've bought some rubbish assets and no one really understands why. Their energy policy abroad and purchasing policy abroad seems confused and um, not quite, um, they haven't formulated a definite strategy yet. We know they need, strate they need strategic imports of coal. They are sophisticated investors. They've got um, a, a fair, fairly firm idea of where their, their country's um, energy profile is going to go in the future. Um, but their strategy of purchasing abroad seems confused. And um, there's a little, I guess, they, I think they would, they would, you know, a lot of Indian companies should be looking for JV partnerships the same way that Japan uh, and Korea have gone, rather than looking to buy outright just coal deposits. Uh, in, in the middle of nowhere. They've got to be very careful with that. So India is still, uh, still yet to see, but you know, I, I see them as being a, uh, a fairly large uh, participant in the market as well. So in conclusion, um, the assertion that uh, these investment practices uh, supported by Japanese uh, government uh, funding concessions um, to stimulate supply to the point where oversupply is sufficient enough to drive down prices doesn't really seem to have occurred, and I would I'm not really convinced that it ever has um, been the case, despite the fact that we had low prices for such a long period of time. That may be driven just due to the, um, the non-index pricing of coal. It was just done over a negotiating table um, every month or so. Um, but definitely the, that, 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 um, that strategy doesn't seem to be existent at the moment. 
their capacity to influence prices may be, may be there in, in their knowledge of coal production, marginal costs and so on, and they can bring that to the negotiating table and, and look to secure greater discounts, but uh, it, that doesn't seem to be persistent either. Um, and their foreign subsidiaries are earning you know, returns well in excess of what their parents are earning, um, which also suggests that uh, in terms of its uh, investment appeal abroad, that seems to be the driving driving aim rather than securing supply. Some of these Japanese companies have now shifted from minority ownership, so just partial ownership, supply capital, to majority ownership, and Itametsu is a classic case, as is Sojits, um, and that's a large risk for these companies to have foreign ownership of a coal mine in a foreign country, and it's, it's um, clearly aimed at, at, uh, at looking to secure returns. Maybe, I don't know, generate entrepreneurial skill or, or something for them to take back home to Japan, but it's... Um, it's clearly a, a growing trend, and it's one that the Chinese and the others, uh, a lot of the other foreign invaders, maybe Korea, but not not as much. But certainly China are confident enough to come here with their own coal miners and and um, and be be uh, be successful. Uh, as is India. India have you know, good, a lot of knowledge of coal mining. They they mine about 500 million tonnes a year. So there's no shortage of Indian engineers who can come here and successfully run a coal mine. It's a hostile environment, Australian coal mining, but. It's certainly there, um, and uh, and this increasing development for 100% ownership is uh, is growing. Profitability investments was poor in in, in the past, and it's now good. Um, and um, the competition with the uh, the other foreign invaders looking to secure secure supply, the security supply issue doesn't seem to be the the key thing driving a lot of investment abroad at the moment. I think that's a, a bit of a furphy. Um, it's more for looking at Diversifying investments and uh, and and other other, I guess, headquarter strategies rather than uh, securing supply. China securing supply in Australia for coal is not really going to make much difference. Yeah. That's the end of my presentation. Thanks for your time. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au/podcasts.